Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. We're like right at the one-year mark, and this morning our goal is to finish up the book of Genesis. And so um, let me explain a little bit in the beginning, uh, not not too much though, because we've got two chapters to get through, um, about like why we would take a year to go through the book of Genesis. So um, we're going to, at various points, refer back to statements that have been made over the course of our journey through this book, which has been just an incredible book. If you've never read through the book of Genesis before, um, you should. You should read through the book of Genesis because, as we stated in the beginning, there's this danger that exists that if we misunderstand or misrepresent the book of Genesis, then we will misunderstand and misrepresent everything else. And so um, while I think we are oftentimes in our culture and in our context more comfortable um, in like New Testament books and letters, There is this danger that if we do not understand the foundation that's laid here in this first book, uh, that we're going to have some problems and some issues when it comes to understanding what's going on in that second half of the Bible that we are so comfortable and familiar with. And so um, it's been a joy to go through the book of Genesis. We we started, uh, like I said, um, I believe maybe like the second or third week of August uh, last year, if anybody would like uh, the notes for the entirety, um, Jacqueline has them all compiled in one notebook, she told me, as, uh, as we were starting this morning. So um, you can catch up with Jacqueline Eves, and she will, uh, she'll kind of catch you up to speed. Um, but uh, we're, we're finishing up this morning in this, in this wonderful book. It's been a, such a joy uh, for us to go through this um, together. Uh, we take time to go through books of the Bible this way uh, because we believe that God knows what we need more than we know what we need. Okay, and so when we set out uh, over a year ago to say, all right, we're going to walk through the book of Genesis, there's this confidence that as we work our way through, that God is going to speak to us in his word and through his word in a way that is, um, that is, I I just think better. Okay, I just think it's better than if we were to say, okay, we're going to spend the next six weeks talking about this and we're just going to kind of bounce around all over the Bible. I think we've really um, seen uh, the content text of the book. I think that we have all grown um, to to love the Lord and to see his plan unfold, to see his commitment to his plan and to his purposes and to his mission through the book of Genesis. There have been some difficult questions and some difficult passages. Um, I'll never forget as we were working our way through one difficult portion, um, hearing uh, Chelsea audibly say from her seat, wow, that was intense, right? Or like, wow, that was really hard. Like, I remember that. And we've come up against some really hard and some really difficult um, sections as we've worked our way through this book. But man, the Lord is so good. And he is so faithful. And he's given us these final two chapters to finish up in this book this morning. And so that's what we're going to do. So open up to Genesis chapter 49 if you're not already there. Um, That was read in the beginning. And we will be working our way as well through chapter 50. Again, that is the goal. Um, And so... Let me, uh, let me say just a few things to kind of set the stage. Um, last week from Genesis 48, we observed surprise blessing and adoption. 
Surprise blessing and adoption from Genesis 48. Jacob's confidence revealed in the plan and purposes of God, which is a far cry from the previous position in which we have observed Jacob in his life. The Lord has been, has been faithful. Um, the Lord has, has worked within the heart of Jacob and the mind of Jacob to reveal his purposes up into a certain degree and to grow his faith where there are still perhaps some questions. As we come into Genesis 49, these first two verses set us on a trajectory to see consequences for sin. I feel like that's a repeated phrase that we've made through the book of Genesis, that there is consequence for sin. That is reiterated as we round out this book this morning. And God's commitment to bless through the coming of a Messiah consequence for sin coupled with God's commitment to bless through the coming of a Messiah who would save sinners while restoring the beauty and abundance that existed in the beginning in creation. We get this picture, we get this glimpse as we work our way through Genesis chapter 49 and 50 of God's work to bring about a degree of restoration that echoes back, that cries back to what we actually see in the first two chapters. Who's familiar with the first two chapters of the book of Genesis? Raise your hand. What do we see there? Tell me, like say it out loud. Creation, absolutely. And how is creation in the beginning? Really stellar or not so stellar? Really stellar. That's kind of fun to say, isn't it? Do you see how we're all getting involved here, right? Really stellar. Creation is beautiful in the beginning. And there is this abundance that we see observed there, right? Only then, in Genesis chapter 3, there is sin, which consequently brings about death and chaos and disorder and destruction. And we continue to see it and feel it, not only in this book, but in the world around us. But there is this confidence that God calls his people into by way of these last two chapters that he is committed to this work of, through a king, restoring abundance and relationship observable there in the very beginning. I want to give us a, a main idea, um, and it's, it's kind of lengthy as is typical, but I think we've got it to put on the screen. And so I don't have to say it 45 times for you to write it down. Here it is. Let me give it to you. Um, this is what we're going to see as we work our way through these two chapters today. Uh, in a world of consequence, we get that. God persists in his promise to send an eternal king who transforms creation and our relationship with its redeemer. There's a lot of elements here, aren't there, right? We see um, the continued overflow of a world that has been corrupted by sin, rebellion from God and his good design and desire for you and I and the world. We see this coupled with God's persistence. We learn something about the character of God as we consider not only these two chapters, but what we have observed over the previous 48. God is persistent. Well, persistent in in what? Well, persistent in his promise, the bringing about of his promise to send an eternal king who would transform creation. And our relationship with its redeemer. This text reveals That decisions have consequences. 
Decisions that we make have consequences. Jacob is set to bless his son, providing a glimpse into their future. We see this in verses 1 and 2. Look there with me. Again, we are a Bible-reading church. We love the Bible. Um, We want you to be with us as we work our way through. We are a note-taking church. We love to write things down and to go back and to consider what we have heard later on as God continues to sanctify us. Read with me in Genesis chapter 49, verses 1 and 2. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble, verse 2, and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to your father Israel. I want us to look in these These first few verses, verses 3 through 28, at the consequence of sin and this balance of blessing. Because both are present and both are observable. And to be very honest with you, it has been a a really strange week of preparation. Because as we talked about where we were going next... After we finished up the book of Genesis, the plan was to go there in two weeks. The plan was to work our way through Genesis chapter 49 and then to weave our way through Genesis chapter 50 and next week to close it all out. But as I read through Genesis 49 and and 50, there was just this realization that was brought about that there is this connection. There is this connection between what we see in these two chapters. And and in this first part, it is primarily consequence for sinful action and the blessing that the Lord is committed to bring about. I don't want us to get lost in the forest. Have you ever heard that saying before that you miss the forest through the trees? Right? Have you ever heard that saying before? You, you become so focused on, on small details and elements of like one particular tree or this particular tree that you miss that there's this vast forest before you. Right? You become so enamored with some detail that you totally miss the bigger picture. I think that there's a danger in us approaching Genesis chapter 49 that way. There is a ton of detail, and I could literally sit up here and give you a church history lesson, but I'm not going to do that. Because I think that there is a, a point that God is driving us to, to understand and to capture as we see sin's consequence, and Jacob's blessing. Between verses 3 and 12, there is this range of emotions and questions that come out as we read. In verse 1, Jacob calls his sons to his side in what seems to amount as a prophetic utterance over each, right? He is telling them what their futures look like and what they ought to expect. That's what's happening here, right? Come around, come together. I'm about to to give some degree of insight as to what you ought to expect for your life. Man, who wouldn't be super pumped about this type of inside information depending on, right, what the content of the message is? Because we find here that there is, there, is, there is really good things in store. But man, there are also some really difficult things in store. Such is 
life, right? Such is the human experience. In fact, in verses 3 through 7, we see Jacob reemphasizing the consequence of past sins for these first three sons. Now, I'm going to go through these really quickly because this is the trees in the forest portion, okay? So if you've got questions about, man, what ought we to, um, to, to think and how ought we to feel in light of what Jacob has to say concerning the blessing of Dan, well, I'm going to leave you to do a little bit of your own study, okay? What I want us to do is I want us to take a 30,000-foot approach to this passage this morning. So let's narrow in here in the very beginning slightly on Reuben, Simeon, and Levi. Now, I'm really, I'm going to give us like a sentence, just a thought about what Jacob has to say concerning their futures. For Reuben, the unstable son who defiled his father's bed, While there is this emphasis on his preeminence, we come to see as we read our way through that he will not occupy this position. That he will not occupy a position of preeminence, typically accompanying the eldest son. We find as as Jacob speaks towards the future and about the future of Reuben that he has forfeited the rights that he ought to have possessed as the eldest because of his sin. Sin has consequence. Simeon and Levi will be scattered, verse 7, through the land as a result of their sin, right? What sin has consequence. They're they're cursed due to their refusal to seek the wisdom of Jacob and his counsel. From Zebulun to Issachar, Dan, Asher, and finally Benjamin, we see this mixed bag of expectation. And all of it is connected with consequence. Ultimately, the consequence of of our uh, older brother's original sin in the garden. There is this differentiation between cursing and blessing, all as a result of the rebellion of Adam and Eve. Do we see this? The book of Genesis begins with blessing that then ventures into this realm of, of cursing, consequence. And as we come to the end of the book, we actually find this this familiar pattern flow to the surface. It's blessing and and it's cursing. Yet the emphasis is clearly on two of the sons. Joseph in verses 22 through 28, the son whom the birthright is given, and Judah who displays for us the fruit of repentance. Judah, in whom we see this beautifully poetic language pointing toward the coming of the Messiah. The seed of the woman promised in Genesis chapter 3. Who will what? who Who will rescue who will rescue sinners, who will rescue the rebellious through his death and resurrection, through his obedience, his death and his resurrection, as God commits himself to an abundant restoration of a world lost at the fall. Look with me at verse 8. Jacob says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. 
Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. Verse 10, Jacob says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Verse 11, Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine. And his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes, verse 12, are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Jacob here portrays this picture of a landscape of vine as he speaks of of this king who who will hold the scepter so vast that they would serve as stations to tie one's donkey. Now, I want you to get the picture for just a moment, okay? What do we typically see uh, or understand donkeys or horses to be tied to? We've all seen those old, those old westerns, right? You, you ride up to the, to the saloon, right, or sheriff's office. I feel like these are the two primary locations of emphasis in your typical western. And you dismount your horse and you tie them onto a post, don't you? And what is that intended to do? Well, to, to keep the, the animal, right, the horse or donkey from, from running away, from wandering off. There's this familiar imagery, only there is this, this slight deviation. Because there's no, there's no hitching post. I think that's what you call it. Is that right? Like somebody, hitching post? Is that proper cowboy terminology? I'm a bit unfamiliar. You laughed a little too hard at that back there. As opposed to this, this post in which the donkey is to be tied, we find that there is this, this vine, landscape of vine, choice vine. Well, if you tie your, your donkey or your horse to a, to a post, right, you entrust it to, to, to be strong. You entrust its, its strength, right, and its, and its mass, right, its circumference and everything that makes it up to be, to be strong enough that the horse or donkey won't be able to destroy it or chew through it and run away, right? Only that's not the picture that's painted here. In fact, we see a, a picture that begins this emphasis on the abundance of a recreation, Donkey tied to a, to a vine. And if perhaps, or, or maybe when perhaps, your donkey chews himself free, having worked his way through the vine, there is this, this understanding or this realization that we are drawn into that there would be in this place zero financial impact felt because the vines are so numerous. 
The landscape is so, is so beautiful and so abundantly full of these choice vines that you can tie these beasts of burden to it. And even if they chew through it, you don't go, oh my gosh, my donkey destroyed the choicest of vines because you are surrounded by choice vines. I think that in, in Jacob's statement here, there is this encouraged recollection of the garden where we began all of this. Right, it started maybe a few weeks ago, pointing back that direction as we see God's people brought into and provided the land of Goshen, which we know is a, is a choice land. They are, they are given permission to rest there, to reside there, to work there. And it sets the stage for us to understand the abundance of this recreation that's being spoken of here as this blessing is foretold. It expands out through Jacob's prophecy of Judah's future and this land. This familiar theme in the book of Genesis, this familiar theme as we weave our way through um, this, this book. Right, this land that is always representative of God's commitment to his promise and his presence with his people. This idea of abundance is being constructed for us. Abundance flowing through the line of Judah. It doesn't stop there. In fact, there's yet another illustration that's provided for us. Imagery of one washing their clothes in wine. As it seems at this point to be more readily available than laundry water. Incredible, incredible beauty and availability. All upon the backdrop of a world that has been stripped by sin. We see this encouraged hope for God's people. Do you see it? Let's remember what's going on in the context in which, in which God's people are living. In the context in which God's people are residing. They're living in a land that is, that is overrun with famine. Sin's effects are being felt. God's grace is observable and that he continues to sustain a people to the glory of his name. And ultimately the good of his people. And upon the backdrop of this stripped world, far from the garden that we see observable in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, far from God's design and desire for creation at the beginning, we see this echoing back to this new place with abundant resources. It feels like we're being called into this consideration of God's work in redemptive history to bring about a recreation, right? A, a new beginning, a new place, a new world. The New Testament can shape the way that we can understand what's going on here. And so I want us to, to, to step into our own context and I want us to consider everything that we have as we survey this landscape, right? Judah is being elevated. That's a surprise for us. If we remember what we saw back here, right? It's kind of hard to read, uh, because our board was vandalized. <laughs> okay. True story, right? It's a true story. 
We went back to our Pac-Man with a tongue, and we remember this, this point in time in which, in which the sin of Judah is observable. And yet now we see Judah's elevation. We've observed his, his repentance in light of his being confronted with his wickedness. And now as, as Jacob's life literally like ebbs to a close, we see this emphasis on the elevation. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12. It informs the position that we ought to, to desire to take. Okay, listen to this. There's, a, there's an informing of the position that we ought to be desiring to take in light of what we observe here. Okay, listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12. He says, whoever who exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. We've been getting glimpses of this take place, but now we see this, this fruition of sorts. Judah's, Judah's elevation as a result of the humility that God has birthed in his life. As we consider the consequence of sin, as we consider the curse that accompanies, as we consider our own position and our own rebellion, there is this encouraged posture of humility. Does that make sense? Do you understand what I'm saying here? Right, there's this encouraged posture of humility. We, we see our rebellion. We understand who we are. We understand our culpability in the story, right? And we are, we are brought to the end of ourselves. We, we understand our wickedness in light of the great kindness of God, which Paul says leads one unto repentance, Right, the, the persistence of God to carry along this plan to restore and to recreate and to birth this abundant place under the authority of a, of a king coming through the line of, of Judah in whom the scepter shall not depart. We are encouraged to humble ourselves. If you're sitting here and you're going, okay, what do I do right now? The posture that we are being encouraged to is, is, a, is a lowly one, right? It's a, it's a low position, right? If I were to, to, to show you like what the, it would be just coming low, like as we sit in our seats, here's a physical representation of how we ought to be feeling, right? We, we are brought low, right? We, we humble ourselves. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 12, that, that the humbled shall be elevated, that they shall be exalted. We see this come to its full fruition in the person of Jesus. If you're sitting in your seat and you go, okay, if I were to, again, physical representation of the humility that I'm desiring to adopt and display, there's not very far that you can go, is there? Right, I mean, you're, you're already seated. And so what, you got a few feet? A few of you taller guys, maybe a few more feet to go, right? There's not very far to go. But when we consider Christ and how he, he fully displays this in its most, in its most beautiful way, we consider the, the length, right, the distance we consider his, his condescension, right? His, his condescension, his coming down, his becoming low, his making himself of no reputation. God says right here as he, as he empowers 
All right, Jacob, to speak forth what is to ultimately happen within these, within these children and these, in these families, that through Judah, the one who has been brought low, will come one who will make himself lower. So that right, the blessing observable, the exaltation in Matthew chapter 23 can be realized. In John chapter 2, we see Jesus producing the type of abundance that we are alluding to here. It's the very first miracle of Jesus. Spoiler alert, okay? Our next series, we're going to be going through the miracles of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And so next week, we're going to be right back in this passage for those of you that are here. Not this passage, Genesis 49, but this passage, John chapter 2, in which we see Jesus at a wedding turning these cisterns of water for washing into wine for the guests of the party to enjoy, right? This abundance, right? This, this power to, to recreate and to restore, to make new. We get a glimpse through John chapter 2 of, of this old system ultimately being done away with. Why? Well, because it's the blood of Jesus that all of this is ultimately leading us to. Right through his institution of the Lord's Supper, Jesus extends the cup filled with wine and equates it with what? Your smart people. His own blood. Holy. Perfect. And yet spilt on the cross. For the forgiveness of your sin, blood that washes us clean, covering us in garments provided by the king. Garments that ensure for us entrance into the kingdom and the eternal party. Let's take a moment and talk about the way that this informs the way that we read the Bible. As we read the Bible, it's helpful to understand that it speaks toward and about Jesus in its entirety. Okay, it's all about him. Jesus himself says this, right? The law and the prophets, it's all about him. It all leads us to Christ. Sometimes there are small roads to Jesus, right? Anybody a hiker in here? Raise your hand if you're a hiker. What about a, maybe a, like, a, like a runner, trail runner? Maybe we put that in the category of hiking. I know there's a few. Sometimes you, you're running, right, or you're hiking, and you're on these really small trails, aren't you? Right? Like, and it almost feels like things are kind of closing in around you. And at, at times it even is like, man, this trail is really, it's really faint. Like I can tell it's here, but it's, it's really faint. And then sometimes, right, um, there are these really well-developed trails. And yesterday, there was a half marathon here in Carrollton. Anybody run the half marathon yesterday? Raise your hand. You guys are so humble that I can't even hardly tell, right? Yeah, a few guys ran the half marathon yesterday. If you saw it maybe in town, um, you know that there were like streets closed down. There were these wide trails with no traffic and, and no danger, just free to, to run, as we read the Bible, it's all about Jesus, but sometimes there are these small roads, and then sometimes there are these major highways. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. 
the first proclamation of the gospel observable in the writings of, of Moses is a highway. It's all about him. He is the seed of woman who comes to crush the head of the serpent. Isaiah chapter 53, it's a major highway. The suffering servant, all about Jesus. Jacob's blessing of Judah in Genesis chapter 49, I think it's a highway. Right, it's, it's all about Jesus. Right, it's all about our king. This first portion leads us into a, into a posture of, of humility, right? That then enables our worship, right? It, it empowers our, our worship as we, are, as we are brought low through this realization of who Jesus is and what he accomplishes and how he fulfills God's promise to Judah here, a king who will, who will reign over his people, and restore this abundance that at this point feels to be so lost that we can hardly remember it. Jesus does this. He restores it. Sometimes our, our lives feel this way. Our, our lives feel as though they have been stripped back, right? We look outside and we go, man, the ground is fertile, but my soul feels barren. There is good news, right? That, that Christ brings about restoration, right? That, that Christ produces this abundance. We've got to move forward in the story a bit. <laughs> we're never going to get through the two chapters. And we're not going to be here two hours, Jeremy, just so you know. We see these blessings that in some cases sound more like curses. But as we consider what Judah, uh, what, what is being said to Judah, and we consider what, what Jacob is saying and how all of this in redemptive history uh, is to, to be brought about to the glory of God, we see that for you and I, there is this broader blessing observable, right, for, for all mankind, so that we can literally look and we can, we can see the separation, right, and we can see this, this humility being brought about for the preeminent one, Reuben, who is not to inherit the blessing of the firstborn. We can see that there is this broader blessing for all mankind, for you and I, judgment passing over certain sons, opening the way of blessing through the lives of others, blessings that make up the base of blessings that we enjoy in Jesus today. God is working all of this for our good, the good of his people and the glory of his name. That's an idea that's going to be reiterated in Genesis chapter 50. Thus, all of this fits together. Let's progress in the story a little bit as we look at Jacob's death. 
Verses 2 through 28 inspire repentance. They inspire rest in God's grace and joy as we observe the abundance promised. As we come into verses 29 and 50, we shift gears slightly. Look there with me. Then, verse 29. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. And so all of the sons, the blessings have been laid out. Some sound more like curses, but we know that God is going to work it all together for good. And now Jacob rounds this thing off with these words. I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, in the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abram brought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife. There they buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were brought from the Hittites, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into his bed and he breathed his last and what? Was gathered to his people. Genesis chapter 50 verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Jacob's request is important. And what it says is important. Right about what Jacob believes about the trustworthiness of God's words. That's the emphasis of what we're seeing here in these verses. Jacob's belief that the word of the Lord is trustworthy. This is important, right? Jacob is looking forward in faith to the time in which the presence of God with his people in this land would become a reality. Why is there such this this strong desire from Jacob to be buried in this particular place, to be taken back to Canaan and to be buried with all those who've been buried there before him? Because Jacob believes the promise of the Lord. And he believes that the Lord will bring his people back to this land. And so he says, and we've emphasized this. I'm going to not talk a ton about this because we have over previous weeks. He says, do not leave me here. Don't leave me here because we aren't staying here. Right, there's, a, there's a confidence that God is doing something bigger right, than what is immediately observable. He's going to to move his people. And all of this is ultimately about his presence, which we see again being restored through Christ. Not only that, but, but Jacob's body, as we read on through the remaining portion of, of chapter 50, would be accompanied into the land by officials, elders, of the land of Egypt. Well, why is that important? That seems to be a pretty minuscule detail. I don't think it is at all. I think it tells us more about, provides a a fuller glimpse of what God is accomplishing through redemptive history. It assists in pointing us forward to a time in which there is this expansion among its inhabitants. Nations gathered into the place of God and the presence of God. There are a few New Testament passages that shine incredible insight onto these. I want to read just a few of these. Is that cool? I'm going to give them to you so you can make a note. You can go back and you can check them out later. Um, we'll begin um, in Revelation chapter 7. 
I want to read verses 4 through 9, and then I want to read, um, I want to read verse 16. Revelation chapter 7, beginning in verse 4. Now, this is, this is John's revelation. Right, the Lord provides this, this glimpse to John of, of the way um, all of this is to be culminated. And by this, I mean like this. I mean like this. Great insight right, into the, into the culmination of, of all things. Listen to what John writes beginning in, um, beginning in verse 4 of Revelation chapter 7. John says this, and I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then he proceeds to go through. I'm not going to read each one of these, but all of the names and all the blessings that we had just heard, we see them brought up again in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. 12,000 from the tribes. And then we come into verse 9, in which, which John writes this. Again, it's planted, the seeds are, are being planted and watered in Genesis chapter 49 and 50. The escorting of the body of Jacob by the officials and elders of the land of Egypt. What does that teach us about, about the nations being brought together into the presence of the Lord, into the place of the Lord? Revelation chapter 7 verse 9. After this, John writes, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. The message continues. Look with me at verses 16 and 17 of Revelation chapter 7. The message is, is this, having, having had their, wo- their robes washed and made white in, this is verse 14, the blood of the lamb, there's this proclamation. Verse 16. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The nations present and represented in the place of the Lord. It only gets better. Revelation chapter 22 This is the end. I mean, we literally went from the beginning to the end. (laughs) Here we are. Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. John writes this. He says, The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. And of the lamb through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. I mean, there's this river flowing from the throne of God that produces on its banks abundance. Second part of verse two, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. There is this confidence that Jacob possesses while he cannot understand its fullness at this point. 
in the word of the Lord that we are able to trace through the remaining portions of the redemptive narrative and understand it to a greater degree. What is God doing? Right? He is fulfilling his word. He is committed to his purposes. He is committed to his plan. And that includes, that includes the redemption of the nations. We get a glimpse by way of these Egyptian officials accompanying the body, Genesis chapter 50, of Jacob into the land. But let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. Because there is also this question that is brought about. There's a little bit of a tension as we, as we work our way through Genesis chapter 50. There's this great request from Jacob, right? To be gathered together, to be buried in the land of Canaan. But this all hinges on whether or not Pharaoh is going to cooperate with this plan, which there is a real tension there. Why? Well, because Pharaoh has met the needs of this family. At least he has from, from his own perspective, right? Like we know that it's God meeting the needs of this family through Pharaoh. Right? But, but Pharaoh has served to, to meet the needs of the people. And so might there be some question as to why in the world are you leaving Egypt? Like we were here for you. We provided for you. We gifted you. We employed you. And now you want to leave? That could be understood as somewhat offensive. And so when we come into this second part, or maybe even first to concluding part of Genesis chapter 50, we see Joseph feeling this tension. The physicians embalmed Jacob, verse 2, 40 days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. He is just shy of the same type of mourning that would accompany a pharaoh, verse 4. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, what does that mean? It means that... Joseph is not here talking to Pharaoh himself, right? But it appears as though he's running this, this request through these, these third parties. He says this, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying I'm about to die in my tomb, that I, that I hewed out of out for myself in the land of Canaan, there you should bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go and bury my father. Then I will return. The question is, how will Pharaoh respond? And the answer is surprisingly well, verse six. Pharaoh answered, hey, go up, bury your father as he made you swear. So this procession follows. Jacob's body is taken and it is, and it is buried. There is, there is lamentation, there is grieving, there is mourning that takes place as we work our way through chapter 50. In fact, verse 11, when the inhabitants of the land of the Canaanites saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Man, these guys are involved, they are committed, they are apart. Therefore, the place was named Abel Miseram. This is beyond the Jordan. Thus the sons did for him as he had commanded. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave, the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought. Here's just continued information that we heard previously. 
Let's close this thing out. We're finishing out the book of Genesis. Everybody hold with me. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, holy cow, talk about a major point of regression. Listen to what they say. Right, it may be now that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for the evil that we did to him. We've already seen Joseph express his forgiveness. And yet there is this fear now that Jacob has passed that, that Joseph might have been withholding his plan, withholding his purposes, and now will enact them, pouring forth wrath and judgment on his Brothers, this is what they actually think. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. How did Joseph respond? We see it in verse 17. He wept when they spoke to him. He wept. Are we really going back here? Verse 18, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, verse 9, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. Here it is. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. For I will will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Again, abundance being displayed through 49 and 50. We conclude with the death of Joseph. Joseph doesn't make it out of this book alive either. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. Holy cow, that's a long time. Verse 23, and Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation, the children also of Machar, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. Verse 24, and Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land. Again, this reiteration in the confidence of the Lord to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear saying, now listen, this is different than what Jacob had to say. Joseph says this, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. What's the difference? There's this emphasis on the Lord bringing his people out of the land. Joseph understands this to the same degree that Jacob did. Only Jacob said, get me out of here and bury me in the tomb. What does Joseph say? Joseph says, when you leave, take my bones with you. Man, from from Jacob as well as Joseph, we are provided these shadows of Jesus. Jacob is taken out of the land while Joseph elects to remain with his people until they depart, carrying his bones with them. We are reminded, even here in this very first book of the Bible, that this coming king, this Messiah, who who will bring about abundance in the land, restoring our relationship with God, resides now, today, with his people by way of what his spirit and so following the the death and the resurrection of jesus we see his ascension we see him him leaving this bodily that reminds us of what we see from jacob to a certain extent only he sends a helper doesn't he 
which reminds us a bit of, of Joseph, only it's greater because this helper is alive. We're not carrying around a bag of bones, but we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We began this book and we asked certain questions like post-Genesis 3, post-sin, post-rebellion, how in the world is God going to accomplish his plan? How in the world is God going to accomplish his purposes? Well, we don't see the end here in the book of Genesis, but we do take a major leap, don't we? We know that he is going to accomplish his plan and purpose through this king. A king that we know will give himself for his people. Encouraging you and I towards repentance. This realization of of sin's existence in us and its consequence for us. Followed by by joy. And the sacrifice of this, this king from the line of Judah who rules and reigns on high today as his spirit resides within his people. There is this sense of hope, even in death, in King Jesus, who restores the eternal. And so I want us to to consider this as we transition to the table. We're closing out the book of Genesis. What a sad day. What a sad day, but it's still here. We're at the end of a very long journey together. And as we close, I can't think of, of a better way then connecting it with this new covenant promise that we remember as we come to the table each week. Genesis 49 and 50, we are brought into this realization of the trustworthy nature of God's word and the abundance that he is committed to bringing about. Through the blood of this Messiah, right? The Genesis 3.15 rescuer and the creator, the better manager and the better steward. The dying find hope for eternal life. Blessed and approved. Loved. Our king has given himself redeeming our relationship with God. So that on this side of history we can say. And we can sing. It is finished. Right, that, that what we see foretold of here, we have seen its fruition. And it's realized and it's understood in the person of Jesus. What an encouraging story. What a wonderful time it's been in the book of Genesis. Let's remember these truths as we come to the table and partake the taking of the bread and the, and the cup. Remembering who Christ is what he has accomplished, and what he continues to accomplish through and for his people, working all things to the glory of his name and for our good. Let's pray together.